So we have our first Zazenkai here at Twining Vines Zen Center today. And uh, coincidentally, maybe not so coincidentally, today is the 10 year anniversary of the passing of Catherine Thanis, who was the abbot at Santa Cruz Zen Center. And it was my involvement with her hospice care in the last week of her life that uh, galvanized my mind to throw my lot in, so to speak, with Santa Cruz Zen Center and to start working with my teacher, Kokyo Henko Osho, which resulted in priest ordination transmission and the capacity to come here to Australia and establish a Zen center here in the lineage that Catherine cared for for many decades. So Zazenkai is a rare opportunity to sit quietly, to observe our mind, It is easy to underestimate how central our mind is to how we navigate our lives and the impact we have on those around us. It's easy to think that actions and words are more powerful than the mind. lying behind actions and words is thinking. It's also quite easy to identify as the thinker and to identify ourselves as the thoughts that we have. I am lonely. I am righteous, I am right, I am wrong, I am sad, I am happy, and so on. But in Zazen, we have the opportunity to be the observer of the thoughts, and not identify as the thoughts. We can notice the thoughts arriving. We can notice that we engage with them for a period of time. And then we can notice that they drift away. And we can practice not engaging with the thoughts as much. We can practice a kind of uh, curious detachment from the thoughts. A kind, kind relationship to the thoughts. Seeing them come and letting them go like clouds moving across a blue sky. 
or wind blowing through and out a window. Blowing in one window, blowing out another. Without anything resisting, trying to hold it in. And one of the things we also do is, besides observing our thoughts, is becoming more attentive to what is happening uh, separately from our thoughts. We become more aware of sounds. We're fortunate that here at Twining Vines we have beautiful sound of birds. Some sounds are slightly more disruptive to the mind and some sounds are conducive to a quiet contemplative practice and we are lucky. The sounds that we have here are very conducive. We have the sound of birds. We have the gentle sound of the heater turning on and turning off. Sometimes the heater is on and we don't particularly notice and then it clicks off. And all of a sudden we become aware of the quiet. A beautiful feeling to suddenly become aware of the quiet when the heater clicks off. And then we might not be so aware of the quiet and the heater clicks on and we suddenly become aware of the sound. We can also be aware of our bodies, particularly aware of our breath. Noticing the in-breath Noticing the out-breath. Noticing on the in-breath that we can let the diaphragm pull down so that the breath feels like it is in our belly. Feel the breath flow, the tantian and the hara. And as we become quieter, the thoughts are less loud, we can notice things like our rib cage just very subtly expanding. Front of the rib cage, the sides of the rib cage. And even very subtly, we can feel movement in, the, in our back. slight changing of how the muscles and the organs respond to the air filling our lungs. And although 
we have all heard these instructions, these descriptions many times. We can relate to each breath and to each sound as something fresh, something new. This is the only time that it is happening. This is the only time you are breathing in. This is the only breathing out. When we can settle our minds and simply attend to these very gentle, simple things that are arising in the present, we experience a deep relaxation. The restlessness, which is a fairly common experience for people, the restlessness subsides. Worries subside. The habit of selfing subsides. That is the habit of identifying with this self as something that is continuous over time space. We can soften our relationship to that pattern of selfing and instead forget ourselves and simply be breathing and being aware of the breathing. Hearing and being aware of the hearing. And if we're fortunate enough to, in one of our periods of Zazen, be quiet enough to be observing our breath, for example, we can then observe the one who is observing. And we can ask ourselves, who is the one observing? And sometimes you may have this experience. You have a sense that I, I think I, the one observing, is kind of behind my eyes, somewhere in my head. I am there noticing the sounds. I am there aware of my breath. And we can ask, how do you know 
you are the one there observing the breath. And then we sometimes can kind of feel, well, I kind of feel like there's someone behind there observing the one who is observing the one who is breathing. If we really rest in that contemplation, we start to notice that we can't really locate ourselves anywhere. There are two fairly common practices in the Zen tradition, as in most Buddhist traditions. One is the practice of focused meditation, focusing on the breath, focusing on sounds. And maybe within a period of Zazen, we may also spend some time being aware of our posture. It's good for the posture to be symmetrical, whether you're sitting in a, a kind of a, a half lotus position is very common in the West. Normally it is the right, the left leg under with the right leg on top. No, no, the other way around. Right leg under and left on top. But a lot of people will alternate. And I do it the other way with the right on top just because I had an injury earlier in my life and this way is comfortable and the other way is not so comfortable. Or we can sit in Seiza. Japanese style, sort of kneeling with a bench or with a zafu turned, turned up vertically or sometimes two zafus, one on top of the other. That can be uh, very relieving on the knees if sitting in half or quarter lotus is starting to tire the knees out. So sometimes after during a full day sit, sometimes near the end of the day, you might need to alternate each period of sitting between sitting quarter lotus and seiza or seiza in a chair. In some ways, the lower half of the body, it doesn't really matter which way you do it, as long as it's stable. The upper half of the body no matter what the lower half of the body is doing, the upper half tends to be the same for all of us, which again is to be symmetrical, to have the spine upright, as if there is a thread pulling from the crown. That's a very helpful image, just a small thread pulling from the crown, kind of lengthens the spine and keeps it upright, but not rigid. Shoulders relaxed, 
facial muscles relaxed, chin just slightly tucked. If the chin rises up, we're more likely to be caught in thinking. Off we're going on a, uh, imagining something, rehearsing something, remembering something. If the chin is tilted too far down and the neck comes forward, we're more likely to get sleepy, which is also a kind of thinking, sleepy thinking. It's a, 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 a hazy kind of thinking, whereas with the chin up, it's more an engaged thinking, actively thinking. So we try and have the chin just a little tucked. That helps to settle the mind. Eyes traditionally downcast, about a metre or so in front. But a lot of people like to have their eyes closed. And you can experiment with eyes closed and eyes open at different times throughout the period of browsing. And we try and maintain our mudra, right hand activity, left hand equanimity, the left sitting inside the right hand, the circle, the symbol of emptiness, which is so central to our teachings. And that is tucked in at the heart. It's relaxed, but it's also awake. It's not floppy, it's not rigid. So a focus meditation can include this sort of body scanning, checking out the posture. Sometimes we need to tuck the tailbone a little under if you People have a slightly sway back, they can sway it a little too much and it, it kind of starts to hurt in the lower back. So you can slightly tuck your tailbone under. Lots of little adjustments. You can notice your tongue in your mouth. Ideally, it should be lightly touching the back of your front teeth or the top of the front teeth. But often we'll press our tongue against the roof of the mouth with this sort of thinking. So you can just notice that scan that, scan across your body and notice all these different parts and make just gentle little adjustments. If you are working with a koan, you may also bring that into your meditation practice. So when we work with the koan, we bring it to mind in zazen and then we just let it be we don't, we don't go over and over and over with it. We just bring it to mind, recite it to ourselves, and then just let it be and return to either listening to sounds, listening to the breath, scanning the body. And the koan might come back in again. We recite it to ourselves, let it rest, and so on. So they're all types of focused meditation. And the other 
style of meditation that we do, which you can experiment with, Shikantaza, just sitting, is an objectless awareness. So sitting without any object of focus. And this is not particularly easy to do. And mostly we need to practice with the breath for a little while each time we sit to settle ourselves down and then we can maybe shift into kind of expansive just resting in awareness itself with no object we kind of rest like we are the empty sky our little things will float past like a little bird will fly past a cloud will drift past but that's okay you don't worry about that you just rest in objectless awareness sometimes you might experience that for just a couple of minutes and it's a very refreshing because it's so different to our daily mind which is full of thoughts so these practices actually do require a degree of discipline and effort. It's a different sort of effort to the type of effort that we put into uh, our work. Because it's not an effort to better ourselves. It's not an effort to add something. It really is an effort to just be present. So it's an unusual kind of effort, but it is still definitely requires discipline. And I would like to say to those who are sitting on Zoom that there's an extra level of discipline required to do Zazenkai on Zoom because our house probably is calling out to us to do other things we have to resist whereas in the zendo it's kind of all set up to make it a little easier to put in that effort there's no there's very little distraction except the distractions we may create in our own mind but the space is set up with minimal distraction so uh, great respect to those of you who are doing this at home I've got a couple of stories I would like to share. The first story is about the second ancestor in China, Huika, who studied with Bodhidharma. And this this rendition of the story comes from a website called the Zen Gateway, an online Zen community. I'm going to read it through and then comment on some different parts. And I picked this story for two reasons. It's an example of uh, the kind of effort and discipline required to really wake up to the Dharma 
to reality. And it also, the, uh, the final part of the story really is about not being able to find a mind. When Weka came to Bodhidharma for training, he was berated by the master for his lack of commitment and ignorance of the severity of the training. Although Waker's response made him the first disciple of Zen, it was also at, his, at great personal cost. So his teacher, Bodhidharma, when leaving the imperial palace, crossed the Yangtze River on a piece of straw and went to a cave close to the Shaolin Monastery in the province of Hui. Here he sat for nine years, sitting so ardently that his legs withered. Another story goes that when he fell asleep during Zazen, he cut off his eyelids and threw them out onto the ground, and where they fell, the tea bush sprang up. Hence why tea is served to the monks during the long sitting periods to keep them awake. Another monk, hearing of the patriarch, came to visit and beseech Bodhidharma to teach him. This monk was called Hueka. Standing outside the cave, Hueka shouted out asking for the teaching, but Bodhidharma ignored him. To show his resolve, Waker kept standing there outside the, the cave as the snow fell. All through the night he stood until the morning, the snow reaching up to his knees. At this point, Bodhidharma took pity on him and asked him what he wanted. Waker replied that he had come for the Dharma. Bodhidharma rebuked him saying, the old masters broke their bones and ground the very marrow of them for the Dharma. Yet you, with your half-hearted efforts, come here and demand it. We must understand that Bodhidharma was testing Waker. Just how determined was he for the great treasure store of the Dharma? Waker's response was to take out his sword, which everyone carried in those days and to cut off his right arm at the elbow. This startling act, like all traditional stories, is to be read with the single eye of the Dharma. We too use the colloquialism to give my right arm for something that means so much to us. But what would I give to attain the Dharma? When we read these stories, we should understand that Bodhidharma is speaking directly to us. So Bodhidharma asked Weka, what is it that you have come for? Weka said, my mind is not at peace. Please pacify my mind. Bodhidharma said, show me this mind and I will pacify it for you. Waker's question already shows that he is well attained in his training. Unlike many, he realizes that his problems do not lie outside of his mind, but stem from it. He also knows that it is the mind that solves that, that is the solution, 
However, he is still under the view that the mind is something that requires pacification. He still makes it an object to be stilled, and in himself the one who is the subject. This is how we all feel sometimes. Something happens. I don't like it. And in the judgment to which I cling, I have set myself in opposition to it. No wonder our hearts and minds are not at peace. Now we must presume at this point, Waker goes away to search for his mind. Waker is looking for the one whose mind is restless, the one who has this restless mind, who owns it and can command it and bring it before Bodhidharma. But what is discovered is that this mind has no owner. So Waker returns and says, I cannot find it. There, says Bodhidharma, I have pacified it for you. In time, Bodhidharma passed on the Buddha's robe and bowl to Waker, who became the second Chinese ancestor in the Chan Zen school. A few things I'd like to say about this story. I love this image of Bodhidharma crossing the Yangtze River on a piece of straw. It reminds me of the line, the world turns on a grain of rice. If we could see each moment as precious and full of possibilities and just full. Sometimes the tiniest thing happens and the whole course of a person's life changes to a tiny, tiny little event. And if we could see every moment with that degree of preciousness, we could see that the world turns on a grain of rice, just as Bodhidharma crossed the Yangtze River on a piece of straw. So in the story, Hueka waits outside and has to ask Bodhidharma a number of times to take him on as a student. And this is part of our, our tradition. In Zen, we don't have a tendency to go out and try and bring people into the Dharma. We don't really proselytize in that way. What we do is we model the Dharma. We be, we be the teachings and people notice and they become curious. But even then, sometimes it's not always easy to get involved. Traditionally in the West, you would have to ask three times, you'd knock on the temple gate and someone would tell you to go away and you would stay all night and then knock again. And someone would come again and tell you to go away. And you would wait and then you would knock again eventually you'd be let in. We kind of like that that's our style. Because it means those that come to the practice really come with a deep desire within themselves, a deep aspiration to wake up. 
And although we don't have this uh, needing to requ request three times, we don't particularly make it easy for people. Come to the Zendo and someone just tells you to sit. You don't even get much instruction sometimes. You don't get that much sympathy. <laughs> but the tender heart of our practice is there. We just don't wear it on our sleeve. But it's there. So Weka brings the question that many of us bring when we first come to the Dharma. Can you please pacify my mind? I'm tired of this restlessness. I'm 20 years old, I'm 30 years old, I'm 40 years old, and I'm still restless. That's one of the main things that brings us to practice. And so Bodhidharma tells him to go, go and search for his mind and bring it to him and he will pacify it. Nueka cannot find his mind. This is a lot of what we are doing here today becoming familiar with this mind and realizing that we are not this mind. So another story. This is case 96 from the Book of Serenity. Joy Feng's disagreement. Joy Feng worked as an attendant to Shishuan. When Shishuan passed away, the community wanted to invite the first ranked monk in the hall to succeed to the abbacy. Zhui Feng did not agree. He said, wait until I have questioned him. If he understands our late teacher's meaning, I will serve him as our late teacher. So just to go through that again, the head of the uh, monastery passed away and the, the people in the community said well we should just make the senior monk the new teacher but the teacher's assistant said I'm not so sure I want to test him first so that's setting the scene for this dialogue then he asked the head monk the late teacher said cease desist Spend 10,000 years in one thought. Be cold ashes, dead trees. Be an incenser in an ancient shrine. Be a strip of pure white silk. Now tell me, the assistant said, which side does this illustrate? The chief monk said, it illustrates the side of uniformity illustrates the side of emptiness. Zhui Feng said, then you still do not understand the late teacher's meaning. The head monk said, you don't agree with me? Set up some incense. The chief monk then lit the incense and said, if I don't understand the late teacher's meaning, then I won't be able to pass away while this incense is still burning. In other words, he's saying, 
To prove that I understand the teacher's meaning, I can voluntarily pass away during the time that this incense stick burns down. So saying, he sat down and died. Guei Feng then patted, patted him on the back and said, as far as dying seated or standing is concerned, you are not lacking. But as for our late teacher's meaning, you still have not even dreamed of seeing it. I remember when I heard this story, I felt this deep sadness in myself that this monk had dedicated himself so fully that he had the capacity to choose his own passing and could do so. But that clearly he was missing something so important in the Dharma. He was disciplined. He had some understanding, but I would say a misunderstanding of the teachings. And he sadly passed away. He was able to be the withered tree. But the withered tree is only one side of our practice. We have a beautiful verse that goes. Oh yeah, wisteria grows on a withered tree in a spring beyond kalpas. Wisteria grows on the withered tree in a spring beyond kalpas. In a timeless way, it is always spring. Wisteria is always growing on the withered tree. And here at 20 Minds, we have beautiful wisteria. Right now it's winter, so we can't see the flowers are not out, but we can see the twining vines, the vines of form and emptiness, of the conditioned and the unconditioned, of the cool and the warm. So we can sit here today like a withered tree, but a withered tree wrapped around by beautiful wisteria. The wisteria that responds to the cries of the world. The wisteria that is tender and gentle with the world, including ourselves. But we are wrapped around the withered tree of no self, of non-attachment, non-selfing, non-othering. Where our state of mind is not determined by conditions, but can move freely with whatever is arising. So this is our practice. So let's finish with uh, our Bodhisattva chant. Beings are